Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Well, good. We have uh, a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith to look at today because this is the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter-by-chapter class. And so we do 45 minutes on one chapter, which is just enough to scratch the surface but not get into any depth. And that's fine. It gives you an overview and uh, thrusts you in a certain direction so you can go and study the confession and the scriptures uh, on your own time. So we are on chapter 8. Hopefully you picked up a handout on the way in. And this whole chapter is about your Savior, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Fine. Finally. Um, Where have we come from? So, first chapter was Scripture. And it starts with Scripture because that's our source of knowledge. Infallible, authoritative knowledge about God. It's not the only source of knowledge about God but it's the only source of infallible knowledge about God, inspired by God. And then it goes on to to God, and then it goes on to God's decrees, so his power, his his divine um, omnipotence over all things. And then it goes on to his creation, and that's where we come into the picture as uh, collected piles of dust, And then it goes on to his providence, so how God rules in his creation. Then it goes on to the fall and sin. And then it goes on to the covenant. So once there's this condition of the fall, the condition of mankind, um, but even prior to the fall, there are covenants that God makes with man. Prior to the fall, there's a covenant. What's the name of that covenant? The covenant of works. There was a law in the Garden of Eden, right? Don't eat from the tree. And on pain of death. And so, and then following that and following the fall, there was the covenant of grace. And now we're to Christ the Mediator. That's the title of chapter 8, of Christ the Mediator. And so, um, what I want to do, how I want to start here is to read through all the sections. This is incredibly dense. This is the densest chapter we've had so far, easily. Um, I could, if, if I were... If I opened up a systematic theology book, 20, 30, 40 doctrines are compacted into this one. I mean, almost every phrase is a, an area of investigation in systematic theology. Very, very intense. And so I want to read the whole thing. And then we'll, uh, I'll just pull out a few things and, and we'll move on. But, um, so let's read it together. Open, follow along if you'd like, or listen if you don't want to follow along. 
of Christ the Mediator, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. The prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Thus section one. (laughs) Not much there, right? Two, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Thus, section (laughs) 2. Number three, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Four, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Five, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Six, Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head 
and the Lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. Seven, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing what is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Eight, to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful an unsearchable dispensation. Deep, thick, wide, broad, right? You begin to check off all the important doctrines that we, uh, we focus on in this. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's really, really thick. Now, one of the first things I want to say about this, we've just read through it, our minds have been set on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we are always catechized by our culture, aren't we? Today's sermons, both morning and evening, and this lesson are trying to overcome the catechism of the world. Okay? That's what I'm going to be doing. In, in Sunday, in the morning sermon, it's male and female, right? You're being catechized in male and female, sexuality. In the evening, we're going to talk about abortion. You, got, you guys are being uh, catechized about uh, femininity and about the womb and about um, babies. And we also get catechized about Jesus. We have, uh, we have such superficial views of Jesus, that are constantly thrust before us, right? Jesus as merely an example of a moral life. You know, somebody who showed us how to relate to other people. That's superficial. Jesus as a friend. Now, he is a friend of sinners, right? But Jesus as a buddy, you know, um, Jesus as the smart guy who said some things that may stand the test of time. Right? The Bible still sells. And Jesus as, you know, maybe this is the most popular with the evangelicals and Presbyterians and Protestants. Um, Jesus is my companion through my life. Ah, you know, the... This, the footsteps in the sand poster or whatever it is, I don't know. Um, this chapter, which is a, a condensing down of Scripture, blows all of those superficial views of Jesus out of the water, right? When you begin to contemplate His being and His works, your mind should just boggle, right? You should... You should say, these things are too wonderful for me. And, 
and and it begins to um, it begins to move you towards something. And what I would say it moves you toward is the fear of God. If Jesus is all of these things, if so many things depend upon Jesus, the God Man, doing and being who He was, then wow. I am completely dependent upon him, completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. And so, this chapter is very helpful to shake us loose from our superficial views of Jesus. Take a a section of this and and look through it and let it um, feed your meditations one day. Read through the scriptures. Now, To go back to where we were, we, uh, Chuck covered uh, com- uh, covenant last time. And what's important about covenant? Well, covenant is revealed from the beginning of Scripture as the way in which God interacts with his creation. Right, right from the start, I'll make a covenant with you. Uh, Genesis 17, 7, to Abraham, I will establish my covenant, berit in the Hebrew, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Right? So he sets up this covenant. And, and we, uh, as fallen sinners are not in any position to be able to fulfill any obligations that God might put on us because why? Because we're dead. We can't fulfill any of the conditions, so we need a mediator. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to come in and do what we can't do. We need Him because we're lawbreakers to fulfill the law. right? And we need Him to to take the punishment for sin because he's sinless and will never be able to be a good sacrifice because we're one of the blemished animals, right? God requires unblemished. And so we need the Lord Jesus Christ to represent us before God and we need also to learn about God and so the mediation works the other way, right? What do we learn from Jesus? We learn the will of God. We learn... Uh, we learn from him as he is prophet, right? And he speaks from God. And so, so this just this Christ the mediator um, flows right out of the previous chapter. And our understanding of Scripture, um, our covenant theology, you know, our understanding of Scripture is based upon this, this covenant theology idea. If you abandon covenant theology then you just have different eras where God is saving people in different ways. Right? Adapting to certain circumstances that come along. And yet we know that God orders all things and, and the scriptural evidence is that He orders them according to His gracious covenants. Okay? So that's the first thing. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, to be that mediator between God and man. He propitiated God and he reveals truth concerning God and our relations to him. 
As God, he, as God, he's propitiating his Father. As man, he's communicating truth to us. And he does both of those things as the mediator. Notice what it says in his eternal purpose. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was designated... I don't know, you you begin to stumble for words when you get back into the eternal counsels of God, but Jesus voluntarily was designated the mediator. And notice it says His only begotten Son. Okay, that sonship, that sonship of the Lord Jesus was was the reason that he was, was, was uh, I don't want to overspeak, I don't want to underspeak, right? That sonship uh, made him the perfect candidate to be mediator, right? It would have been inappropriate for the father to be the mediator, not being the son, okay? And so Jesus is that mediator between the father and man. And then it talks about the, the three offices. Now, why does it mention prophet, priest, and king? What's the big deal about that? Why are we always hearing about prophet, priest, and king? What's important about that? Any thoughts? Hey, um, this is ringing like crazy. Can you turn the bass down in the EQ and bring the volume down a little bit on channel 11. Okay, prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, they are offices. They are the offices uh, that God has laid out in his Old Testament law. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all of these are mediators. I mean, it's just that simple. Jesus is the mediator, and it's not something that we don't see all over the Old Testament. It's not something we don't see all over the Scriptures. We see mediators everywhere. Prophets mediate the Word of God to the people. Priests mediate the sacrifices made to God, right? And the king mediates and in the ways that Christ acts as our king. He, he's a lawgiver. He keeps order and protects us from our enemies. Right? So it's all mediation here. All mediators. And so th- that, that's why those are important. And that's why it's important that Christ be viewed as a mediator. Because clearly he's called prophet. Clearly he's called a priest. And clearly he's called a king. Right? And all of those are mediatorial offices. So everything is sort of sticking to that covenant idea, right? It's all coalescing into that covenant idea. So prophet, priest, and king, uh, very important there. Uh, <clears throat> notice the scripture text, 1 Timothy 2, 5. 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and men. And that's your Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the first point I wanted to make. Um, is mediation is, is so important. And again, to reiterate this, uh, I, I, here's some Hodge. Hodge did a commentary on the, the Westminster Confession. Um, it's, it's kind of, he's a brainiac, so some of it's helpful and some of it's not. I wish he was a little more pastoral. But he, um, he's talking about this idea, so what's a, what's a mediator? And he says, well, you know, usually this is what we think of, one who intervenes between contesting parties for the sake of making reconciliation, Right? Somebody who intervenes and tries to bring two parties together. He goes on to say the scriptures apply this term in a higher sense than that uh, to Christ. They teach that he intervenes between God and man not merely to sue for peace and to persuade to it, right, like a litigator between two parties. No, but he, he comes... Armed with, and here's a good word, plenty potentiary power. Now, who can tell me what plenty potentiary power is? Maybe. Not really. <laughs> I had to look it up. I mean, I don't know what that means. But, but Jesus, not like a litigator between two parties, but... He comes with this plenipotentiary power efficiently to make peace and to do all that is necessary to that end. So he has power to make that peace happen between the father and sinful man. Okay, and so plenipotentiary, it's um, diplomats who are invested with the full power of independent action on behalf of their government have plenty potentiary power. In other words, it's, it's sort of the difference between a, a committee and a commission in the, in the Presbyterian circles. The commission can go and finish the work. They have the power to go and do it. Committees have to just come back and report and then you vote on those sorts of things. But this is an ambassador who goes and essentially is that nation. It's an ambassador that goes, he's the nation, he's the king, he's the president, he's all. He can do whatever he wants and make decisions and enact them. That's crazy power. You don't want to give an ambassador that sort of power, except in dire circumstances when things need to be ju judged quickly. But Jesus has that power. And so it's not like he, he comes down here and he's, he's maybe trying to figure out, well, how can I... How can I bring together the father who's holy and angry and man who's sinful and obnoxious? And so I'm going to talk to them and then I'm going to go to him and, I'm going to, and we're going to negotiate this thing. No. No. That's not the kind of mediator that Jesus is. He's much more powerful than that and he has the power in himself to make peace between the father and and how, between the father and man, and how does he do that? By his obedience. 
active and passive. We'll talk about active and a passive obedience in a moment, but I think you know what they mean. By his obedience, by his works, by his humiliation, by his exaltation, he brings together these two parties. And it's glorious, right? And so why is this important? Why is it important that Jesus have plenty potentiary power? Because you are dead in your sins. You are dead in your sins. And if you think that you can mitigate this gap between you and God, you're deluded. You're wacko. You're a fundamentalist if you believe that. You're dead. You're dead, right? Um, Adam broke that covenant of works, and we died in him. And we can't fulfill our end of the bargain. We can't fulfill it. And so grace is necessary, and grace is embodied in Jesus Christ, right? Full of grace and truth is Jesus Christ. That grace is necessary. All right. Such is point number one. And I have 20 minutes. Turn to section two. I like this section. This is the, uh, this is the Westminster Divines stealing from a 5th century council, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, Chalcedon, I mean, people say it all different ways, I say Chalcedon, and so the Chalcedonian formula comes, uh, was, was a, a statement about Christology in the 5th the century that codified um, Christ and who he was. And so we get into Christology, we get into the hypostatic union, we get into Trinitarian theology in this, and there are just a few things that are confusing to me in this that I think um, we should point out. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance, right? One substance, one essence, one God, and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time came... Take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Now, what does that mean? What, is, what are the essential properties of being a human? Let's not go there yet, right? Because that's a, that's a very complicated conversation. Um, I, I don't, what's that? He's got a body. It's a body. It's flesh and blood. It has a heart that pumps blood around, right? He's got a brain. He's got the, that's what it means to be human is to be a body and a soul, right? And he has a body and a soul. He's a real man. He's fully a hundred percent man. And God, 100%. Right? And so, and the common infirmities, what are the common infirmities? He got hungry. 
when, when the windstorm kicked up and he got dust in his eyes, it hurt his eyes, pain, right? All those common infirmities. He was a man, a true body. He ate, he slept, and then we go, and then it's necessary to then say, yet without sin. Because our natures are fallen and sinful. But that is not, right, that is not an essential property of mankind. Right? We were created originally with holiness and righteousness. Okay? But being fallen, we now have corrupted natures. Right? And then, and then it says this, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance. So where did Jesus get his humanity? He got it from a 13-year-old girl in Israel. He got his humanity from a woman. And then dignified the womb. Dignified femininity. Dignified the woman by, by lodging in the mother's womb and their growing. It's just like, right? Boggles your mind. So he gets his, his humanity from Mary so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person. Not two persons, one person, two natures. That's the creed of Chalcedon, right? One person. The Trinity is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then that one person of the Son has two natures, human and divine. All right? Inseparably joined, right? Does Jesus, Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And so even now, he has a human body exactly like yours saves the corruption of sin. He's got a human body. He's in one place. He's, um, he is glorified humanity. He has glorified humanity. Now, it says, and the man is uh, inseparably joined together one person. And then it says these, uh, these adjectives here, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Now, explain that to me. Explain that to me. Okay, you got two natures, right? You got two natures, man and God, uh, humanity, divinity. And they are a distinct but joined in one person, distinct, joined in one person. And so, um, without conversion, if they were conversion, uh, this, is, this would be sort of like, um, there's a heresy, these are old heresies that they're counteracting here. But there was a heresy that said his divine spirit took the place of his human soul. The divine spirit took the place of a human, his human soul, which would be to make him not like us. 
right? Because he wouldn't be a soul and a body, which is what is natural to, to us. And so it would be like a body inhabited by the spirit without a soul. That would be conversion, converting the soul to the, to the divine spirit. That's bad. No, it's not what's meant. And then there are people, another heresy, where they, uh, without composition, and composition would be um, two natures, two persons. Two natures, two persons. God, uh, a man united but separate. And, uh, and so that's, that's a no, right? Two natures united but absolutely separate. No combining, no, no joining but separate. And then the last one, confusion, is uh, the natures are pressed together, like the human and divine natures are pressed together to create some, a third thing. So not human, not divine, but this third thing that's like he's unique. There's no one who has a nature like his because it's its, its own thing. And that's a no-no. That's heresy, right? You, you can't do that. I mean, his, mediator, his mediatorial work is killed the minute you do that, right? Because he's not a man. He's not God. He's this tertiary quid, this third thing, okay? Those are all heresies that were condemned. And it, it's important. Because these are hard things to conceive of, and all, of the, all heretics are trying to do is protect some view they have, right? And sometimes, uh, sometimes they should, should take a seat back and, and hold to tradition, you know, that's been handed down. They, they, uh, but this, this Christology, this Trinitarian theology was worked out over the course of the first five centuries of the church. Um, one of the ways Hodge summarized this is he said uh, his divinity never um, died and his humanity did not come down from heaven. Right? His divinity never died. He died as a man. Right? And his humanity didn't descend from heaven like that would not be like us. You know, he was... He was birthed through ordinary generation. Well, extraordinary generation in his case because of the Holy Spirit, right? But still through the womb of a woman. He was born as you and I are. His humanity came from a human, right? And so it's not like just this, this divine man descended from heaven. No, no. And his divinity, because divinity cannot be diminished. Divinity doesn't die. All right, put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, what else did I want to point out? Section three. There's a word in here that I didn't understand, and it's easy to explain. Um, harmless. Do you see the word harmless? It describes Jesus as holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth. Well, that's a quote of a scripture. If we went to, um, uh, where is it? It's Hebrew somewhere, but 
the word there in the Greek is akakos, which means not evil or guileless, right? And so harmless in the sense of being guileless, uh, it's talking of there. Um, not harmless in the sense of, he, he, you know, he couldn't hurt a fly, uh, that sort of thing. And so I wanted to point that out. Um, In all of this section three, we have the effect of his hypostatic union. What is the effect of this coming together of humanity and divinity? And and, um, it's glorious, right? The coming together of God and man leads to this... this, um, his, his being set apart and holy. It leads to his anointing with the Holy Spirit above measure, right? Having all the treasures, unlike a normal man, having all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it pleased the Father for all the fullness to dwell in him, right? All of the divinity to dwell in him. To that end, being holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth, he might become, he might be thoroughly furnished, this is where you come back into the picture, to execute the office of a mediator and surety. What's surety? Yeah, it's a guarantee. It's just a guarantee. The guarantee of your salvation is due to this work of Jesus Christ, this, uh, this combining of humanity and divinity, right? He becomes the surety. He becomes the perfect mediator. He is able to represent both man and God. He's prophet, priest, and king, right? He has all these offices. He has plenty potentiary power, and he comes filled with love. Right? He loved you first. And so he's, the, because of his excellence, he is an absolute guarantee of salvation. His perfect excellence, his perfections. Uh, man, I got notes all over the place. He took upon this this office willingly, right? We've just gone through that in the book of John. He took it on willingly. Can you force divinity to do anything? Can divinity be forced? No, that's why it had to be voluntary, right? He's God. You don't tell God what to do, right? There are no outside influences higher than that. Now, he's obeying his father, right? But he's taking upon this willingly being God, and <clears throat> discharging these duties. And then here's what we see in section four. Section four is uh, two doctrines that are very important. One is the, is the estate of Christ's humiliation. The, the second half is the estate of Christ's exaltation. Right, so Christ's humiliation consists in what things? 
How was the God-man humiliated? Okay. 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 Yeah. What else? Just think about. Took on flesh. His body is producing waste. I mean, yeah. I mean, all the he, he has two things. God Almighty. Yeah, just the very, the very idea of him being in the womb of a woman, of getting his flesh from from a created being, right? Of being, and then he he had to live under the laws that he wrote for us. Oh man, he had to keep those laws. That's humiliating. He made those laws and he perfectly fulfilled them. He endured grievous torments immediately in his soul. Right? Uh, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. My soul. Down to the depths of his being, his human nature, he is suffering. Right? Painful sufferings in his body. And then he was crucified, and that was humiliating. And he died, and that was humiliating. And he was buried in the ground, and that was humiliating. It's God. And then he remained under the power of death, but saw no corruption. And then the exaltation begins, right? From humiliation to exaltation. On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body with which he suffered. Not a new thing, not a different thing, same exact body. And that goes up um, with which also he ascended into heaven, and then he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. That's all his exaltation. That's all his reward for obedience. His reward as the mediator, right? He is exalted. And waiting now, as he sits to the right hand of his Father, he's waiting now to come back and judge the entire world. Now in the next section, it talks about obedience and sacrifice. And this is the active and passive obedience of Christ. This is a way that theologians have have understood the works of Christ, and, and the, this active and passive obedience of Christ are things that are imputed to us, that we receive by faith. When he keeps the law, we keep the law, if we're united to him, if we're in him by faith, right? His sacrifice was, was substitutionary. It was vicarious, right? And so as he died that punishment, it's us in his Uh, who should be there, but he dying in our place. And so the active obedience of Christ is is Jesus perfectly keeping the law. The passive obedience was his willing reception of the punishment of sinners, breaking the law, right? The cross, that's the passive obedience. 
The active is keeping the law. And so, what is he doing in this obedience? He is fulfilling the covenant of works, right? And actively obeying all the commands of God. He is being just, in other words, and he's fulfilling uh, the punishment due to sin. He is the justifier. He has fully satisfied the justice of the Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And then that last little phrase there that they keep coming back to, for all those whom the Father has given to him. Particular redemption. Right? God does, Jesus does not potentially die for everybody. He effectually dies for the elect. He does not fail in his task. He does not open himself up to failure. He succeeds as the mediator between those that God chose before the foundation of the world and an angry God. He succeeds. Um, I think this again is from Hodge, that Christ did not die simply to make the salvation of those for whom he died possible, i.e. to remove legal obstructions to their salvation, but that he died with the design and effect of actually securing their salvation and of endowing them gratuitously with an inalienable title to heaven. Or... Or what? Or he just potentially died and y'all got to do that one work. Right? He got almost all the way there and you just have to do that one work. But then, but then there's no security even after you do that one work. Right? This is not the testimony of Scripture. And it is is such a weak Jesus, right? It is not the testimony of Scripture, but it's a very weak Jesus. It's it's an Americanized Jesus, right, That, that says that everything has to be individual and it has to be by your own choice. It's an Americanized Jesus. No, Jesus is powerful. Jesus wins, Jesus secures, Jesus completes. Jesus does not leave tasks half done. He's almighty God. He finishes and completes his works. And one of those works is to absolutely, without fail, secure the salvation of those who were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. And we should all be like, amen, hallelujah. Who am I that I would be included in that group of, of people chosen based on, on, by God's good pleasure and for no other reason? Chapter, or section 8 To all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, look at all these tasty things that you get. If you're Christ, you get a bunch of perks. He doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate that redemption 
makes intercession for them, reveals to them the word, the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and wisdom. And he overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. He rules over you. He gives you any good, any good thing you have, any knowledge you have of the Word, that's been given to you by your Savior, the mediator, Jesus Christ. Right? Any good thing. All your overcoming of your enemies will come by His hand, He being king to you. Right? Any, any having been persuaded of the truth of the Word by the Spirit is because of Jesus' work. And He intercedes for you. Have you ever rejoiced in that? You don't know how to pray for yourself, but, but Jesus is there before the Father saying, look at my wounds for that child. Right? Look at my wounds for that, that glorious child of mine. And so, you know, Jesus as the companion in, companion in life's journeys, and Jesus, the Jesus who will give you a great marriage, and Jesus, you know, the the example of, of this or that good deed and, and powerful word spoken. Forget it. Jesus is God. Jesus interceded between an angry father and a sinful schmuck like you. And it's glorious. Right? It's glorious. It's your only hope. It's your only hope. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, but think very highly of Jesus Christ. You need to elevate your thoughts of the God-man. Right? That's my purpose in this, this morning. And so, next time, we logically move on to free will. Renton. You're up next week. <laughs> we got to pray. We got to close. Father, thank you for Jesus. Oh, Lord, we need, we need you. We need such help. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and you made us alive in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you provided us the perfect mediator. We thank you that though we were dead in our sins and we were destined for hell, you sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from that domain of darkness. And we have now been transferred into the kingdom of his son. Lord, thank you for the work of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.